With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, great. Okay. All right. 
Thank you guys for standing by. We have had some major technical difficulties, so I have gotten started live into the studio, and we are going to edit those parts out in the beginning and up re-upload after the show completes and is ready for download. So I want to tell you some more about Star Daisy. She is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and she is also an advocate. She has created the Star Institute for young girls who have been abused to give them a voice and to come alongside of their parents as well. Now, Siobhan kind of Star Davis, she is dedicated to positively impacting her community through mentorship and motivation, serving as both a resource and a beacon of hope for girls. Star earned a Bachelor of Arts in Mass Communication from Florida State University and initially believed that her career path would lead to broadcast journalism. However, a chance meeting with a prominent Atlanta attorney opened her eyes to the power of the law and the need for women like her in the courtroom. She emphatically answered the call and attended North Carolina Central University School of Law to obtain her Juris Doctor degree. She served as a staff attorney with the Office of the Public Defender, Atlanta Judicial Circuit for over five years. She is a native of Louisville, Kentucky. Star came from a tumultuous upbringing that made her a resilient woman who is passionate about the care and treatment of girls within the justice system and beyond. At the age of seven, Star experienced her first encounter with sexual abuse at the hands of male family members. In, in notes, she says that its members is not just one. So for nearly two decades, Star remained silent about her abuse. So this is 20 years after her abuse. She remained silent about her pain and did not name her abusers to her family until well into adulthood. This experience fueled Star's passion to ensure that no other girls suffer in silence and led to the creation of the Star Institute. Star's journey to healing was a long one, and when she was a child, she knew of no program to help her deal with her abuse. It is for this very reason that the Star Institute is dedicated to uplifting girls who have been sexually abused or trafficked and reminding them that they, too, can shine where they are. Star has tackled her role as a family woman with the same grit as the founder of the Star Institute. When she is not working, she enjoys nothing more than spending time with her husband, son, and daughter. Star, welcome to Patricia Adams Live. And Thank you. And I want to commend you for everything that you've done in pursuit of bringing justice to the voices of young girls, children who have been caught in this cycle of abuse. And I was just prefacing as we were going to set up the show to basically say that there's so many people on the outside who have never been abused. And and I say on the outside because I have to put them on the outside of this. Because if it's never happened to you, then if you cannot find empathy for the individuals who have endured sexual abuse, this conversation will irritate you, and you will probably try to discount it. I will continue to have this conversation with as many people as are willing to come forward and talk about their story as long as possible until something happens, until there's a change. Ultimately, 20 years from Star's initial abuse, she found her way into the judicial system to bring about a change. And 
from what I've read about Star's story, she's still compiling her memoir in preparation to produce her story in print. Now, for those of you who say, why didn't she say something sooner? Why is it that people are coming forward now and saying something after decades? This is a mind trap for a lot of young people. First, you are blaming yourself because the perpetrators are making you feel as if it's your fault. And I'm speaking from my side of the spectrum. And then they want to make you believe that you're enjoying this. And they want to exercise control over you. So they've isolated you from the rest of the people who would hear you, that you feel that you could go to to talk to, because if they can control your dialogue, they control your voice, they can control where you go, who you see, who you talk to, um, by intimidation. Sometimes you don't even have to say anything to a child. Just by the way you look at them, they know to be quiet. They know to be silent. Now, I'm not trying to tell Star's story, but what I am trying to do is set this up so that for those of you who have endured our technical difficulties in a listening audience, that you have a grasp on what we're talking about. Maybe it's happened to you and you're not ready to talk about it. Maybe it happened 30, 40, 50 years ago and you're not ready to talk about it. Well, the statute of limitation is running out for and has run out for a lot of people who have been sexually abused and who are being sexually abused. The clock starts to tick. And when you think about that, most children are trying to grow up. They're trying to process being a child. But then you lay on top of them the indignity of physical pain from being sexually abused, being sexually assaulted. It's not pretty. It's not a pretty thing physically, mentally, emotionally, intellectually. It's very difficult for a child. And then you get some children who come up and say, I thought that was normal until they go to somebody else's house and say, okay, well, this isn't happening to my friend. And then this creates a conflict. So here is where Star, I believe, would really shine. And this is what she says, that she wants these young girls to be able to shine. And telling you her story and how she's been able to help navigate other young women through this process. This is not just something that's just happening to females. It's happening to boys. And we've had guests on the show who have talked about it happening to boys. And, and I didn't want anybody to think that I was being biased just about boys. I am about the human being. I'm about bringing attention to this and making it something that it doesn't matter who you are in life, whether you are on the lowest end of the spectrum to the highest end of the spectrum. This is happening in mansions. This is happening in shacks. It's happening in trailer parks. It's happening in fine hotels. It's happening in lofty places. It's happening in low places. This is what I want to bring to the table is stop marginalizing this and stop saying that it's only about women. It's about human beings. It's about boys and girls, men and women, 
who are being abused. But right now we are showcasing Star Davis. And Star, again, thank you so much for enduring everything that you've gone through in life and everything that you've accomplished in spite of that and enduring us trying to get through this show. The one thing that I can say is that when it's somebody who has something very key to say, it, I don't know what it is. I don't know if the technical uh, imps are upset or whatever, but blockage happens. <laughs> and we are, the one thing that I can say about me is that I will persist and I will continue to try to figure it out. So we're here right now and show, and right now for the show we have exactly an hour and 31 minutes. Anyone who wants to call in and speak to Star, please call in. I will add you to the queue. And the number to call in is 515-605-9704. Again, the number to call in, 515-605-9704, and we will place you in the queue. But in the meantime, Star, let's talk about you. And well, your thank work. you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, for having me on. Um, thank you for working through it and not giving up. Um, I always say that technology is a gift and a curse. Um, it's a great thing, so thank you. Um, and really, I guess for me, um, I say that at seven, that's when my life changed. Um, seven is when the molestation began, um, and seven is also when my mom became addicted to drugs. So my whole life, as I knew it, just, you know, kind of changed at that point. Um, and I was raised in the church, and I come, I come from a family of workers. Um, I'm the first person in our, in our family to graduate from college, but I came from a family of workers, and that's what you did. Like, you worked, and, you, you know, you kept your head down. We loved one another. You did the best that you could. Um, but when she became addicted to drugs, everything just spiraled out of control. You know, I was going from different, you know, family members' homes, living with them from, you know, kind of living from place to place. And um, to be honest, I I was very, um, I was very uh, disappointed in my mom because I wasn't born to a mother who was addicted to drugs. And so my sense of style, my my love for people, uh, my love for self, just for life, period, like everything, I got that from her and my grandmother. Um, and so I was kind of let down. And I'll tell you this, I don't know if anyone remembers that movie, New Jack City, um, but I, I think that people probably thought my mom was crazy because we were two kids, and at the time it was just me and my older brother. And she took us to see that movie, and the whole point was, I'm never going to do this, and I don't want you to ever do this. Um, and so it wasn't like I didn't know what she was doing. I knew full well what she was doing um, when I walked in on her, you know, snorting a line of coke, or I, if I'm cleaning up and I find tubes, you know, in the kitchen, you know, closet when I'm going to get the broom and the mop. So I knew what it was. Um, and so it was just a lot. I, I really, you know, attribute uh, everything to God because a seven-year-old doesn't have the wherewithal to be able to compartmentalize and rationalize everything, but that's what I did. So I knew it was wrong um, for them 
had to be touching me, and it went on from about 7 to 12. They never threatened me. They never said, if you tell I'm going to do X, Y, Z to you. They never said anything, but I knew it was wrong. Um, And then the reality is that you're still a person, and then you start to develop a physiological response to what is happening. So then you start to expect it, and a little bit of it is you start to want it, right? Um, And no one wants to say that. No one wants to say, oh, this is, I want this to happen to me. Um, So there's a lot of things that go into play. Um, And for me, I didn't know really how uh, to rationalize all of that in my mind, except for I'm going to put myself in church and I'm going to put myself in school and I'm going to make sure that I do the best that I can do in both of those places because I'm getting out of Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm never coming back. That was my mindset, right? So people think, oh, victims, you know, have to react in the same way. They don't. Some people might cower and become a shell of themselves. Some people may start getting straight A's. Some people may start acting out, which is what people think. But there's really no cookie-cutter thing for this. Everybody um, is affected and react to it differently. But what I can tell you is that it affects every area of your life. Every area of your life is affected. Um, So for me, that looked like staying the course with school. Um, I only applied to Florida State. I think I may have been to Florida one time. I didn't know anybody in Florida And I was getting far away. And my plan was to move to Atlanta. I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. Um, And my 18-year-old self said uh, that, you know, that was my plan. That's what I was going to do and never go back home. What I wasn't doing was I wasn't feeling. So for me, that meant I never wanted to get married I never wanted to have children. Um, I didn't want to, you know, open myself up. I had two layers going on. I felt like my parents had abandoned me, um, and I felt like if I can't depend on my own parents to protect me, then how can I depend on some random man for that, right? So I never was putting any energy into romantic relationships. It just wasn't my jam. Um I just didn't feel like that was necessary. I didn't feel like that. And I couldn't control that, right? But what I could control was my grades. I could control my work ethic. I could control all these tangible things, which are good. But if I'm a mess on the inside, it doesn't matter. And that's exactly where I found myself. I did not love myself. Um, I was disgusted with myself. Um, The abuse had me to make decisions that, you know, were, you know, I, I always say, like, you know, I made good decisions, um, I made bad decisions, and, you know, and I'm just thankful that I'm still here with some of the decisions and some of the situations I put myself into. Um, and it was a long process. It was a long process. And even though I never told any of my family, I did tell my best friend when I was, 
um, the summer before the sixth grade. That's when I started living with my grandmother. And I told my best friend, um, and I can, like, remember it like it was yesterday. She had these, you know, these white bunk beds that was the twin at the top and the full at the bottom, pitch black. We're supposed to be asleep. And I'm staring up. She can't see my face. I can't see her face. I, she can't see that I'm crying. She can't see the guilt. She can't see the shame. And I'm like, I'm going to help girls who are like me so that they never have to feel like what I feel like. When we get grown, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I told myself when I was a kid um, because I couldn't understand it. Um, and while I did not ever physically try to hurt myself when I was growing up, I thought about it, and I thought about it often. And I thought about, you know, would they care? Like, would they really care if I wasn't here? Um, you know, they would be able to go on, at least my pain, you know, maybe somebody would feel like what I'm feeling. Um, and so, you know, as a child, your I mean, your brain is literally still forming and the parts of your brain that tell you about consequences and just all of that had informed. And I just, you know, I was surviving, you know, I was doing the best that I could at that time. I felt like there was so much going on in my family already that I just figured, you know, this would be one other thing. This would be one other thing to add to the fire. So I kept it to myself. Um, and then, to be quite honest, you know, I don't know what made me tell my mom, my grandmother, and my godmother, because those are, like, the three women. And I should also say that, by the grace of God, my mom has been clean now for 13 years, um, and she is, like, one of my biggest supporters, all three of them, really. Um, but before starting the STAR Institute, I talked with my mom, um, you know, and I, I said, you know, are you cool with this? Because in telling my story, I'm telling your story, too. And she was like, baby, it's not about us. We have to help other people, you know. And so I don't know why, but at my law school graduation, I told them all. I told all three of them. And I think that it had become one of these things where I started to look and see, and I mean, I've never lived at home, Louisville, Kentucky, I mean, um, since I graduated from high school. But I just looked and I started wondering, well, what if they're still doing this? You know what I'm saying? What if they're touching other people? What, you know what I'm saying? And it's not okay. And I think that that becomes the turning point because it's hard. It's hard to say it. It's hard to say it out loud. Um, it's hard to fully wrap your mind around it. And then it's, that's one part of it. And then the other part of it is, well, how are people going to receive it? You know what I'm saying? Because everyone doesn't have a situation where people are accepting of it, um, where they believe you, you know, actually believe you and don't think that you're lying or they are not saying, okay, sh don't say anything, just, Keep that to yourself, right? Those are some people's actual experiences. So while I didn't have that, that you know, they were supportive 
and, you know, they, they felt bad, and they were like, why didn't you say anything? And, you know, I was like, listen, I don't want you to feel a certain kind of way. I don't want you to feel any kind of way. I'm just letting you know my truth, and this is my truth. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that those family members, it's not like they're banned from the family. Um they still come around, you know, if they wanted to, which is another thing that people have to, as a victim or as a survivor, that you have to endure if it is a family member or if it is a close family friend or just someone that's in your life that you can't just readily, you know, put out of your life. Um, so, yeah, that was that was pretty much um, – you know, my journey into it, I'm so, I'm so very thankful for my husband um, because, I, you know, I tell him all the time, you know, thank you for loving me past my pain um, because I just didn't feel like I was deserving of, you know, love and that someone should care about me and treat me properly and that I could give that to them in return. Um, and so I'm just thankful. I'm, I, I tell him all the time that I'm thankful that he did not give up on me um, because, you know, of everything that I've ever done, David and Parker, our son and daughter, those, they will always be my greatest accomplishments. And, you know, I would not have had them without him. Um, but it was a long, steady process, and I, you know, I had to get counseling, and I had to, you know, I had to forgive myself, and I had to forgive, you know, my parents, and I had to forgive, you know, uh, my abusers, um, and you know, and then I let my family know, the rest of them, like this is not going to be one of those things that we're going to sleep under the mat, but that it's over for that. We're not going to do that. We're going to have, you know, a meaningful conversation, um, and I want you to be on alert that this is who they really are. So that that was pretty much my process. You know, I'm walking through what you were saying, and I could, you know, feel that all the way through. And to know that the person that you were able to share this to was another young girl. And so mm-hmm. when you shared that with her, what did she do in response to that? So, you know, it's so crazy because she's my best friend and uh, we have been best friends forever. Like we've, we've gone to school together since the first grade. Um, and, you know, I was a kid, she was a kid. So we didn't know. It's funny that you asked me that because here lately, like this year, a couple of months back, she really told me, um, and we had this full-out crying session. I don't want to cry right now. But um, she just felt like she always had to protect me. Um, and she she never told anyone because she didn't want to lose me as a friend. 
And then in her mind, again, because her kids were in middle school, but in her mind, um, she was thinking, well, we're always together. So if we're together, they can't hurt her. Um, And I had to apologize. I had to apologize to her because she didn't deserve that. Like, I didn't deserve what was happening to me as a child, but she also didn't deserve me putting that pressure on her for keeping my secret. Um, And so I call her my best friend, but she's my sister. But, yeah, we just, like, literally had that talk. And so I think that it's important that you have to have conversations um, with your children, even if you don't have children, any of the children in your lives that are important, just to let them know that even if it's not your parent, because it might, it might can't always be your parent, but you have to have a trusted adult that you can talk to, um, that you can share information with, um, so that you're not in that type of position where you're holding something in as a child, trying to figure out how to do it, but then also that you don't do what I did, which is confide in another child, and then that's just another person um, that's going to be burdened, you know, with that responsibility, and that's a lot of responsibility to give a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, first I want to say to you and to your friend who is now like your sister to you, as you said, I want to, you know, just speak peace and healing into her life and into your life. And know that above all else that in this, that when people say they talk about, you know, victimless crimes, sexual abuse is not one of those. It's it's not a victimless crime because not only did mm-hmm. it victimize you, it also victimized your friends. Uh, mm-hmm. Because that was collateral damage. That was collateral damage. And but because of the how because of the nature of it happening, it like you said, we're not gonna sweep this under the net anymore. Mm-hmm. And Normally in the lifetime, if someone is a true, when I say, I'm not trying to say true or false, but someone who has uh, pedophile tendencies, they have more than one victim in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And some of them before they die can have as many as 400 to thousands of victims, depending on how adept they are at navigating that whole system of going from one child to the other because sometimes it's not just about your gender, it's about your vulnerability. Now, you were a little girl, but at the same time, something that I discovered was is that while I was a little girl and thinking that this was just something that happened to little girls, it was also happening to the little boys in my family as well. 
and the little boys never uttered a word. And if you tried to say anything about it, it was like, shut up, you know, don't say anything. Right. You know, mind your own business. And for me, coming through the things that I did overall, it always created this thing in my mind because I didn't find out until I was an adult that it was happening to the little boys. I I didn't even have the concept that this was happening to the little boys and the family. But there was like this light switch that came on for me when something was said by one of the boys who were now grown adults. Something was said, and I thought, you too? And so I didn't say anything, and then finally I had the courage to ask them, did something happen to you? You know, did somebody, you know, this person, daughter, whatever, do something to you? And their response to me told me everything. And I was I was taken aback by that because I knew that it, I was not the only girl that it was happening to. I knew that this person was going down <laughs> the list of girls in the family. And then I tried to rationalize why this was happening, that, okay, you know, I'm adopted, so it's happening to me because I'm adopted. You know, I'm not really related to them by blood, da da da, whatever. So this is why they can justify doing what they're doing to me is because I'm not really a part of the family, right? So decades and decades go by, and I'm still thinking, okay, well, you know, um, this is happening to me because I'm adopted. This is happening to other people because girls in the family because they're steps. And then later on, as an adult, having the conversation with people who were blood related and finding out that it was happening to them, I became indignant because there was nothing sacred. There was absolutely, you know, nothing sacred. It it was happening to all of the vulnerable children in the family, male, female, blood, not blood. It was happening across, across the board, and not only in the family, it was happening outside of the family, and there was no justice. And there's still no legal justice because the statute of limitation has expired, okay, for the majority of those who were victimized. And then to have this same uh, expression of someone who now the people who they're, you can't get total satisfaction from molesting a child. It brings you a certain level. And and. There was something that I was watching, I think it was on Forensic Files, and this is why I'm bringing, because you've been in the legal system, and on Forensic Files, and this young man, he was a young man at the time, had an ice cream truck, and he was going through the neighborhood, and he was casing children in the ice cream truck. And finally, he found his target, and he isolated her, and he started giving her extra things when she would come to the truck, extra things, you know, besides the things that she would pay for. He would give her extra things. And then he was finally able to just lure her to the truck by herself and then finally take her into the truck and drive off with her and abuse her, sexually assault her, rape her, everything. And the little girl said, well, this doesn't hurt because my grandfather does this to me every weekend. And then 
the man who was in the ice cream truck gets incensed with her because she's not the virgin that he thought she was. And he beats her to death and dumps her body. Well, he goes unprosecuted for decades before finally forensics has caught up and the DNA gets processed and and they're able to capture him. And his explanation for why he killed her was because she wasn't the clean version that he thought she was. So it goes not just in the family. What about the people outside of the family? This is something that we say, you know, we're not going to sweep it under the rug. We're not going to sweep it under the net. We're not going to turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to what's happening. But the victims are beyond the family, beyond the family. So in, in your time in the judicial system, can you talk about, I know that there's some things you cannot talk about, but if there's anything that you can talk about that kind of speaks to that, that you saw that you can share with the audience about if someone within your family is doing something like this, then the likelihood that they're doing this outside of the family is highly probable. But then what happens? Well, well the thing is, and I think that it, because it with the justice system, the point is, Someone has to know, right? Mandated reporters. There are certain professionals like teachers. They're mandated reporters. I think what we have to back up into is to actually have the conversation with the kids in our lives, right? Like you have to have a conversation about, first of all, it starts because what I noticed when I was in juvenile court and superior court, little things like one, knowing the biological terms for your body parts, right? I have a five-year-old son, a three-year-old daughter, and they know penis and vagina, right? And the reason I say those things is because there was a report that a family had taught their daughter that her vagina was cookies. And so she tells the teacher, oh, well, my daddy ate my cookies. And the teacher is thinking literal cookies. So she doesn't realize that this child is disclosing to her, right? And so I think it becomes a the the first step is being educated, right? I had clients who were 30 years old talking about he put his thing. What's a thing? I don't know what a thing is. You understand what I'm saying? So it has to be the educational piece. We have to inform our children, one, about proper boundaries. We have to inform them about the correct biological terms for their body parts. We have to, and when I say proper boundaries, that it that even goes so far as to say, okay, listen, your body is important because I think all too often we forget that children are people too, and we don't give them credit because they're small. But just like you have a bad day, they have a bad day. Just like you don't want to get touched or you don't want to be touched or you don't want to be bothered, they feel the same way. But how many times have you heard, oh, go give grandma or grandpa a hug and a kiss, or go give, you know, uncle or auntie so-and-so this, you know? Um, and you're, the messaging that we're sending to them is that their space and their privacy is not honored, right, because you are telling them you have to, you go, you have to give that person a kiss. It's not you giving them the option 
do you want to give? So, right, so how we teach our children is, you know, can mommy and daddy give you a hug and kiss? And if mommy and daddy, if you don't feel like mommy, you want to kiss with mommy and daddy today, that's fine. You don't have to give us one. But you are empowering them to have control over their bodies, right? And that's important to learn that from early on, right? Um, And letting them know what's a safe space, letting them know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Because because children really learn by what they see. We say things to kids all the time, but they mimic what we see. So that's how I had a client um, one time who, of course, she could put the dog together in the forensic interview and show you, you know, what goes on top and what goes on bottom and what was going on. Why? Because the adults in her life were having sex in the next bed in the hotel room, and you think that that child is sleeping, right? So it becomes one of those things where we have to educate them, where we have to have open, honest dialogue with them, and then we have to provide them with a safe space to be able, um, a safe space to be able to talk to whomever that safe person is. If it's your parent, if it's your aunt, if it's your teacher, you got to be able to have a person. And then just to your point, kids pick up on cues. So it depends on how you say something, what you say to someone, you know, um, how I knew it was time for me to leave the office um, and start the STAR Institute was I was interviewing a client, um, and I'm like, okay, so we're going over the police report, and I asked her to tell me, you know, how do you know this this man in the police report? And she said it, you know, excuse my friend, she said it just like, you know, was she was saying the sky's blue. She said, I know him from when I used to sell pussy, but I don't do it anymore. Those were her words. She was 15, right? Now, imagine if I was to have some overt reaction to that, and uh, that would make her, be, because she trusted me. She was able to have that conversation with me. Somebody else she may not have had that conversation with. So we have to be able to be clear to let let our children know that we're open and that we're here with space, but we have to go over those boundaries with them, and we have to let them know certain things, um, and we have to model the appropriate behavior in front of them um, and make a safe space for them to feel like they can come and confide in us, right? But if you get that educational piece, then somebody can pick up and say, okay, whoa, I don't think that's not right, right? Because if we don't start with giving them that educational piece, then online is going to give it to them, movies are going to give it to them, other friends are going to give it to them, and that you can't you can't guarantee that information is going to be accurate. So it has to start with us having these conversations, and a lot of times people don't want to have the conversation, but we don't get that luxury anymore, okay? I say all the time on the Internet, you can learn how to build a bomb, make a baby, or bake a cake. You really can. These kids are exposed to so much more at such an earlier age. So the only thing that we can really do to try to protect them, because we cannot be with them 24 hours, seven days a week, is to educate them and to give them the tools that they need, which, you know, is the education, so that they can, one, make good decisions, and so that they can, two, 
know to reach out and talk to that trusted space, you know, when they don't feel like something is right. And that's amazing because in the mindset of a 15-year-old, to be able to have that conversation with you as raw as she was having that conversation with you, she would not have had that same conversation with someone else. And because you were open to her, you were accessible, and you could speak her language in the terms of you understood what she was trying to convey to you. And you just gave me something else, and and I really, really, really want the audience to hear this. And whether you're listening live now or later, is that your body parts need to be defined. You need to define your body parts and your children's body parts by their proper terms and not call them something else so that when someone who is not supposed to be touching them says and and even how let me let me restate that because anytime a child is being touched whether it's by someone that they're used to touching them or expecting has the right to touch them I, I want to get all the way down to the lowest common denominator here a child is born from a mother and a father and it is expected that that mother and that father are supposed to be able to touch that child at any place, any time, any point, anywhere. I just interviewed someone earlier this week, Linda Day, and her mother sexually abused her. And because her mother told her, you know, I'm your mother, I can touch you anywhere, anytime, any place, then this was her reality. But something inside of her felt like something was wrong about it, the way that her mother touched her. And as she began to mature and notice that these kinds of things weren't happening with other children and their mothers, she began to question some things that were happening to her. But not mixing her story into this, I'm saying to the listening audience, if you'll go and you'll listen to Star's interview after this is over, because this this interview will become available as an MP3 file that can be downloaded and shared anywhere that it needs to be shared, okay? I'm, I'm going to clean up and edit the, once as soon as this is ready, I'm going to clean up and edit where we had the technical difficulties, and so that way it runs a little bit better when people are listening to it. But if you're listening live right now, it's important for you. If you are a caregiver, if you are a daycare provider, if you are a parent, a grandparent, that you teach the proper terms for the body parts. This is if you're healthy and you're giving care and you're being a mother and father to these children. Because an unhealthy person, whether it be the mother, the father, the sister, the brother, the uncle, the pastor, the doctor, the lawyer, the teacher, the engineer, whomever, would say to them something else, what would call this something else, let me do this to you in exchange for this. And the terminology of, of doing survival sex, this young woman basically was talking to you about survival sex. And she was selling herself at, at a young age, and at 15 she's talking to you about this. 
but overall she has experienced things that you would hope a 15-year-old would never have experienced. But at the same time, she was doing it out of condition, and then it became a part of her means of survival. It became her survival kit. Well, I can, you know, speak to that because the way that I was groomed was, okay, you know, I'm I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to do this, this, and this for you. And, but then ultimately you expect them because they are the adult to be taking care of you. You expect that if they're your guardian, if they're your mother, your father, whoever, and they have charge of you to be taking care of you. But then somewhere along the line, then it becomes, well, I'm going to do this with you because I did that for you. Then the reality sets in is, okay, so every time you buy me something, every time then I need to expect to reciprocate, you know, and allow you to do this and this and this to me. This is this is um, an ugly evil. But the one thing that I have found universally is in everybody that I have been interviewing and from my experience, the ultimate goal is to isolate, to infiltrate, and to divide and conquer. That's, that's the ultimate goal behind anyone who is a predator. Call them a pedophile, call them whatever you want, but the nature of it is is to be a predator. And so if you if you look at how the animal kingdom operates, you will see that they isolate their target. Then they infiltrate them, they pounce on them, they capture them, and they devour and they conquer. So Applying it to a human being, isolate them, infiltrate them, devour, divide, conquer, whatever it is, ultimately to control that human being. That is an evil. It's an ugly evil that is prevalent. And because we've given passes to so many things and we've winked and we've nodded at so many things, and we always make children out to be out, and I shouldn't say always, but in terms of their ability to vocalize, to verbalize and articulate the things that are happening to them, we say, oh, this is just a child. They don't really understand. They don't really know. A child is a human being, and they know in- instinctively right from wrong. A child doesn't get taught how to lie. A child instinctively will lie if given the opportunity to do so. There is something that is born inside of a human being that the switch between right and wrong is there. And either that person is exposed to things that dwarfs them, that damages them, and turns them into predators. Are they born predators? I I don't have the research behind me to say that they're born predators, but something happens that causes them to become the predators that they are and that they go on to be. And nobody really has, I haven't found it. If you, if you do know of it, Star, please refer me to it because I would love to get into it. The resource, the, the tools that are 
I don't know if they would be in psychology or psychiatry or the legal system or whatever, where people talk about what turned them into the predators that they became. You know, there's there's a lot of different things out there that I could go and dig into, but I mean, I really, 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 really um, am looking for that one piece that will say, mm, there it is. So I had, uh, like I said, I interviewed Linda Day the other day, and her book was called Sane Enough, Surviving a Mother's Sexual Abuse. And I'm talking to you today, and I'm talking to you about other members in your family, were they cousins, were they, you know, uncles, um, whatever in your family, were they people in authority in your family, or you you can't say that, but just other than the fact they were male members in your family, they were biological to you, or were they adopted, were they in-laws to you, anything like that. But this is this is um, this is really hard to hear this from you, but at the same time, it gives me hope because of what you are accomplishing and what you're doing to make a difference and what you are about to do and what you shall accomplish in your family. And I believe that you're building something strong enough that it will not stop with you, that it will continue. And I've been on your website, the Star Institute, and I've looked at the people that you've got surrounded, you know, yourself with and everything. And overall, this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. And I am sincerely proud of you, genuinely proud of you. I don't know you personally. And how we connected was through LinkedIn. And I was looking at your profile and I'm thinking, this is somebody that I want to interview. This is somebody who has a story that I want to share, that I want to be a part of the conversation with. So I thank you so much for accepting my invitation to be on the show and for, you know, coming and talking so openly and so authentically about your journey. And above all else, it's like um, I'm trying not to cry. That's okay. Listen, I, I, listen I, I've already I, had my time. <laughs> and I, I'm doing I think my it's a best part of try. it. I think it's a part of it. Um, and, you know, I think that it's because, you know, when I was that seven-year-old me, that young star was like, why is this happening to me? And now that I'm on the other side, it's like, okay, I see you guys. I understand what this was all about. And because it's not about me, right? It's just me. It's just my story. But every every time I speak somewhere, it never fails. Someone comes up to me and says, I've never said anything, right? And you know what? They may not ever say anything, ever. Like they might literally not ever say anything. Um, it's about what's the statistic, maybe one in ten survivors will never say anything. But when I speak, at least they know that they're not alone. At least they know that they, someone else feels the same way that they feel, that they're not crazy, that there are other people who made it through this, and I can make it too, right? So that's the one piece of it. And then the other piece of it is 
it didn't kill me, right? It did not take me out. So that means I have purpose. It means that I'm I'm still here. So I, and so that's why one of our shirts says, I'm not my past, I'm my future. We all have a past, right? And sometimes people are going to try to bring that up and dredge it up and put it in your face. But once you make peace with that and that you understand that I had to go through that, I had to overcome, I wouldn't change anything. If I could go back in time, I would ask God to give me the same life that he gave me. You know why? Because I wouldn't be the star I am today had he not allowed me to be able to overcome those things. And that's what's so important about it, and that's what's so great about it. Um, And that's why we say shine where you are, right? We say shine where you are because sometimes there are some really tough times in our lives, right? And things happen to us that are beyond our control that we don't deserve, but you still got to shine. You got to shine in the happy times and you got to shine in the bad times, right? And the thing that I literally, a mantra I used to live by um, as I was coming up, I would always tell myself, it's got to get better. It's got to get better. It's not always going to be like that. That is what kept me going. It's got to get better. And I and I continue to say that, right? And it has gotten better, and it's gotten so much better, and I'm so much better for it. Now, do I have to every day check in with myself and make sure I keep myself pepped up? I do, but now I love myself. Now I know I am deserving of love. Now I know that it was not my fault. Now I know that there wasn't anything that I did to deserve that. I'm not dirty. I'm not ugly. I'm not a whole host of things that I had talked myself into saying that I was because of what happened to me. And more than that, I'm not that person anymore. I'm not that person anymore. And so for me, it's just about being able to be, I say all the time, I want to be to girls what my grandma was to me. And I feel like you only need that one person, that one person that loves you, that supports you, that holds you accountable, um, and that's going to rock with you. And that is and that is what our kids need to know. I know that the Star Institute, we focus on girls, but when we go and we are spreading the word about prevention, it's for boys and girls because our boys matter. And I have to tell people all the time that boys are trafficked too. So it's not just we need, I'm in the state, I'm in the business of making sure that all of our children are protected. And that's our responsibility. That's the adult's responsibility. But we have to come together as a whole, meaning we have to have this conversation, meaning we have to shine a light on the ugliness so that we can get to the other side. And so if you have to cry, that's okay. Because you know what? I don't, I, I say I'm a thriver, right? I am thriving. You know, at one point in my life, I was surviving. I was. I was just trying to make it every day. But I'm thriving, and it's important for me to reach back down and to pick up as many girls as I can so that they can get to this other point, so that they don't just stay in that despair of this is my life, this is all I am, I'm nothing. No, you are something. You are beautiful. You are brilliant. You are worthy. I say these random characteristics to my kids every day. Sometimes they're asleep. Sometimes they're woke. But I want them to know. I want them to know I see you. If nobody else sees you, I see you. And our kids need to know that they are seen. And, and, and it matters if you're not here. It matters. 
This is a lot heavier <laughs> than I thought it was going to be because I really am looking forward to you completing your book. I really am. Um, because in my mind, I'm I'm a writer, and in my mind, I'm just stepping through you talking, and I'm like, okay, now I can see your book coming together, and I'm really looking forward to reading it and having you back on the show to talk talk about it as well. My my biggest thing is right now is that. Um, I'd like to extend an invitation to your friend through you that if she wants to talk, I'm willing to hear her talk about what it was like for her um, because okay. I haven't encountered that. And like I said, if if it's a part of her process, something that she's wanting to do, she doesn't have to, but I'm just extending that invitation that if it will help her, you know, get to the place that she you know, feels like she needs to be, then I'm willing to have a conversation with her as well. So um, with that said, I still am just scratching the surface with you. (laughs) Just scratching the surface because I have so many questions and running through my mind that I want to ask you that it's not time. I know it's not time for me to ask you this question, and that's why it's like I'm I'm pausing and I'm thinking, okay, it's not time for me to ask her that. But the one question that I want to say to you, to people who are in a position of authority, who are caring for other children, I've gone out and I've spoken at daycare groups, Mm-hmm. And I tell them that these children are in their care for 8, 10, 12 hours a day. And they have a responsibility to these children. Mm-hmm. Just as just as much so because the children that are being dropped off with them, you don't really know what they've gone through before they got to you. Mm-hmm. And not just, you know, uh, be people who are caring for a number. Like, you know, you've got the 5 to 1 ratio, you've got the 2 to 10 ratio. They're, they're not numbers. They're human beings, and they're in your care. And for that period of time, however short, however long it is, they are trusting you to take care of them. And maybe they didn't come from a place where they could trust. So what I'm getting at is that there are children who are being dropped off at daycare, Mm -hmm. being dropped off in other people's homes who are good caretakers or good people, but they aren't coming from that place of goodness and care. And then you have children who are in a place of goodness and care being dropped off in places where care is not being given to them. So it's it's two sides to the same coin. Okay. Because you see babysitters are, you know, abusing children, caregivers are abusing children, daycare centers are abusing children. And there is a certain amount of diligence. And but even in doing proper diligence, there is something inside of you, inside of every human being that is kind of like a warning warning, warning warning. This is not 
a safe place. This is not a safe person. But we dismiss it sometimes because this person looks the part of being safe. Mm -hmm. And this is where I say to people, it's not about stranger danger. I grew up in a time where it was all about the white van and candy and stranger danger and a trench coat. If you saw those things, you ran. You screamed, stranger danger, stranger danger. But I also had the experience of non-stranger danger violations in my life. And they looked the part that you could, you know, um, see them anywhere. And they looked the part of being safe. Mm -hmm. They looked the part of being trustworthy. They looked the part of being someone that you would want to socialize with, that you would want to feel that you could invite into your home and allow your family to intermingle and to sleep over and be interchangeable. And it's not the case. This is not the reality that we have. But because I think humanity wants to look through these rose-colored glasses and say, oh, the world is such a wonderful place and the people in it are such wonderful people. And so, yes, you know, I can go here and I can go here and I can leave my children here and I can take, you know, my family here and I can go here and I can go there. But the reality of it is is that something inside of you is telling you there's more to this person than meets the eye. Then I think you should probably take a cue from that and back away from it and reevaluate the situation. And I you know, watch um, young people who are raising children in this day and age that we're in. It's not a new thing, the things that are happening. It's not new. The only reason why it seems like it's new is because it's being televised. It's being talked about. Um, It's being picked up by the media. It's being picked up by the Internet where maybe sometimes the local news doesn't pick something up. A YouTuber will pick it up or an Instagrammer will pick it up, and they'll run with the story. So, the way that we get journalism now and, and news now has changed tremendously from the wild, wild west to traditional journalism. Everybody has a, a phone, almost everybody has a phone, and they're taking videos, they're capturing audio, they're doing things, and they're uploading it. And sometimes they aren't even aware of the magnitude of what they've captured until something breaks. And they say, oh, you know, I've got a video that will support this and will support that. But in this environment where we are so desensitized, that's that's what I want to say, we're so desensitized. Because I had a situation a couple of days ago where there was this man, he was running up and down the sidewalk and he was screaming. He was in pain. He didn't want to die. He said, somebody call 911. Somebody called 911, and people were just standing there, you know, looking at him, just yelling to the top of his lungs, running up and down, you know, saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Someone called 911. And I'm thinking, what's going on? You know, so I turn and I look, and I'm thinking, okay, I can't just stand here. (laughs) You know, I can't just stand here because I don't know if he's telling you know, if he's in distress or whatever. And so then I say, okay, so it's not my decision to 
determine whether or not this guy is telling the truth or not. So I did call 911. And at the end of the day, it was myself and one other person that responded. And he ran past maybe 25, 30 people that did absolutely nothing or, you know, pulled out their phone and, you know, recorded. And I'm concerned about this. I'm really concerned about this. Not so much because we stand by and, and we're watching things happen. It's that this this is hard for me. This is heavy for me to even really articulate how I feel sometimes about certain things because if, if I don't, then who will? And that's why you have to keep doing what you're doing, and that's why it's so important because between what happens in this house stays in this house and well, that's not any of my business, so I'm not going to do anything to noun. We record people who are in distress instead of calling for help. That's the type of society we're living in. Um, so it just takes all of us who are in this movement, you know, continuing to lift our voice, you know, and as long as we don't go away and we keep pressing, you know, people you know, people will hear. Not not saying that they're always going to actually take action, but they hear us. And at least you know the information. And if it's just one person, one person's life could be saved. One person could get the you know, the gumption to to want to, you know, speak up. One person can start taking note of this child who is there. And then, you know, facilities might want to start training their staff, which I think is another important piece to this, Make you know, mandating that, that staff is trained and that children are taught. Georgia just made the law where K through 8 now, I believe, has to learn about, you know, sexual abuse and prevention. Like, you, it has to be taught in the schools. That's a step in the right direction because typically, you know, schools don't want to talk about that. But it's it's real life, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. It's not stranger danger because the majority of people who abuse um, children are people that you know and love and that you trust, right? Yeah, we I, I tell people, yeah, taking happens, but that's like 1% of it. People, Some people are out here snatching kids, but that's not – really how it works for the most part is people who have access to your kids, you know. So you have to, it is heavy, um, and you have to make sure that you take your breaks and you take your pauses and that you do whatever it is that you need to be able to fill yourself back up um, and refresh yourself so that you can stay in the fight. And then we just have to support one another. Um but we can't stop. We can't stop because our children's lives depend on us. And these children are going to turn into adults who will run this world. And we want it to be better. And if we can catch them early on, then they'll make good decisions about everyone's life as a whole, you know, because they're going to be in control one day. And that's 
that's the other thing too is that I remember there was some information that was disseminated to me and I, I researched really, really intensely. And I was almost about to invite this person on the show. And because they had a piece of information that I felt like the public needed to hear about. So as Mm -hmm. I was digging, you know, not digging in that sense, but as I was just pulling information together, okay, you know, this is something that we can talk about. This is something that I want to, you know, highlight that I found that this particular person who's in a high position, I mean, a high legal position, themselves were involved in a situation where they were being accused of doing certain things that were improper, okay, and in a sexual nature. And this is this is what I'm saying is that we can't just give blind passes to people. We can't just give buying passes to people based on uniform, based on suit, based on dress, based on economics, based on what they drive, based on where they live, based on where they work, where they, you know, serve, none of that. It's that at the end of the day, um, and, and I'm not trying to be cliche about this, but Martin Luther King said, you know, that he was looking for a day when his children would be judged by the content of their character. Well, I'm looking for people who the content of their character matches matches who they are in the public. Because there is a public character and there's a private character. So the person that I meet on the street has to be congruent. Has to be congruent. If I meet you online, if I meet you wherever, is that at the end of the day is that when the story comes out and when we make a connection is that are you congruent? Are you who you say you are in public and in private? Because you can be publicly wonderful and privately a monster. I grew up with it. I I lived with it. And that, I believe, if I could say that anything it helps me to be more discerning. There's a difference between being judgmental and there's a difference between being discerning. Is that because I experienced such heinous things from the hands of people who were considered public success. They, they were success stories in the public eye, but they were private failures. That when I entertain someone that I'm very, very um, conservative about who I entertain. I do my best to be conservative about that. But at the same time, it's like, you know, people want to just trust. And, and it is. It's a good thing to be able to trust. But you just don't throw it to the wind. You don't just throw the doors open and say, gee, I hope I can trust you. Because we invite people into our homes, we invite people into our family dynamics, uh, single women, especially single women with children. I interviewed um, someone a few years back, and they were both youth pastors in a major, major church, and they had been rescuing children, right? Mm-hmm. And 
in rescuing these children, they brought them into their home, okay? Well, the wife is away, and the husband, there's no reason for her to think that him bringing the children in while she's gone is an issue until she comes home one day and she finds the husband in the bed with the child who happens to be a boy, and they're smoking pot. They're both, you know, he's a leader. He, he's the one who helped to rescue this young man, but at the same time, there he was in the bed with this young man smoking pot with him, and he had had sex with him. The young man later ends up contracting AIDS. The wife goes to the leadership, and the leadership pretty much does not turn him over to the law and says, okay, you know, we're going to handle this in-house, and their way of handling this in-house was to obviously step him down from being over the children, but he's still a part of the ministry. This is this is a, a huge thing that is happening in institutions. And, and so I'm grouping it together as institutions because it's happening in legal institutions, it's happening in religious institutions, it's happening in educational institutions, it's happening in social, civic institutions where people say, okay, you know, we're going to handle this internally, Okay. We're not going to go to the court system. We're not going to go to the law on this. We're going to take care of this ourselves because we have a way of handling these things. And the methods that they have is either, okay, we're going to, if somebody comes to us and they say, okay, you know, we are going to go to court, we're going to do this, well, then they offer them money to go away. Well, after her discovery, she also later finds out that there are more boys that this youth pastor has abused. The youth pastor has AIDS now, um, and he has passed AIDS on to another young boy who ultimately ends up dying in his teens. So this youth pastor leaves that ministry. He goes and he sets up in another ministry, and now, you know, they've gotten divorced, and he gets remarried. And this new church and this new wife, they don't know anything <laughs> about this. Uh-huh. Because when people come into the religious and all these other institutions, they're governed by the things that they say make it right. And it, it, it goes unreported because at the end of the day, there are so many things that are being unreported and underreported that when I look at statistics, when I look at uh, victim statistics and, and all these things, I'm, I'm always looking at it with, a, with the mindset that this number is not accurate. I challenge it automatically because I know for a fact that there are things that are not being reported. They're not being counted. And so when you say, well, there are more girls and boys, there are more this and that, you know, I, I look at it automatically and say, you know, I don't, I will take it for face value, but the numbers are, are off because there are too many things that are not being reported. And I have been around too much to know that everything that's happening is being reported. Now, you've been in the judicial system 
and the things that are coming to your attention that are being reported to you are a representation, a small representation of the actual population of people that things are being done to. Imagine the numbers if people actually did come forward. Everybody came forward when something was done to them that would overwhelm the legal system. And maybe that's what needs to happen for a change to happen. I don't know. I know that change has to happen and change has to come with the way things are dealt with, the way things are done, because it's, it's compartmentalized. Um, it's everybody is running a separate set of numbers, and sometimes the numbers come together and they, you know, make this big report, but still they're not being fully reported. They're not fully reporting because a lot of people aren't ready to report. They aren't ready to speak up. Um, they're too young to speak up or they're too old to speak up because they figure, well, what what's going to happen? What good is going to come out of it? Because I can't prosecute. I can't, you, you know what I'm saying? It's like the, mm-hmm. the statute the of limitation and the way society views someone who has been victimized. And when I say victimized, because I'm trying to make it broad, it doesn't just have to be sexual abuse. Any type of victimization, a lot of people are too prideful to report, too afraid to report, um, too skeptical of the systems that are in place to report. And so we don't really have the full picture. And, and I, I hope someday that we will have it so that it is transparent and that people have a safe place and a safety net to go to. There's, there are organizations out there, but there aren't enough. There, there aren't enough to really address the issue. And I recently did a, a presentation and did a study on homelessness, and, and I had a chance to interview some people directly. And most of the people that I had the opportunity to interview were homeless because they had been sexually assaulted at some point in their life. And yeah. they either dropped out of school early, I mean very early, started using drugs at, you know, eight, nine years of age, fell into the sex trade, the sex trafficking, fell into so many different aspects of life, but the majority of them, and it's not just women, I'm talking about men and women who are, who are being sexually abused. I remember uh, walking down in the city and seeing people in Hummers and Bentleys driving along the street, going and picking up young kids and taking them away and bringing them back and dropping them off. And I'm trying to process this. I'm like, now, wait a minute, hold on, you know, just because in my mind, I'm trying to figure this out. And it's like I'm seeing these fine, fancy cars on holiday, on Thanksgiving, on Christmas in the city. They're driving, so I guess they say, you know, I'm going to go run and pick up, you know, some milk. I'm going to go run and pick up some ice. I'm going to go do this, whatever. So they're driving, but while they're running to pick up the milk and the eggs and whatever else that somebody needs back, they're taking a detour and they're going and they're picking up young children who are on the streets during the holidays and violating them and dropping them off and then going back to their fancy life. It's happening. 
It's real. And all I can say is, is that um, it pains me because I want to solve. I, I want to make a difference. And it's huge. It's bigger than I am. It's bigger than I am. And it's like this this big churn, this big cesspool that these people who are being victimized are trapped in. So it takes it, it takes a lot to navigate the things that I'm trying to put out here and reaching out to you because I saw that you were making a difference and that's important to me to see somebody making a difference when I see so much where a difference isn't being made, that I need that balance and I need to pinpoint and I need to highlight and spotlight people who are making a difference and who are being a part of the conversation. And I'm being a part of the conversation the best way that I can at the moment, but I want to do more than what I'm doing and I need to do more and I have to do more. And I feel an urgency inside of me that, I can't quite articulate right now because it's it's very <laughs> it's it's wound very tight. And all I can say is is that I want to thank you again and I'm trying to keep from crying for being a part of the solution. It's it's easy to be a part of the problem, but thank you for being a part of the solution. And thank you for being um, a part of the solution as well. I, I want to thank you for saying that because I really want to be a part of the solution. I just don't feel you are it right you, now. You are. I, I really don't. You and are. That's don't what, diminish. Don't diminish what you're I, doing. You are highlighting an issue, and you are giving a voice to people who have experienced this, which is in turn giving other people a voice that we may not ever come across but they came across this broadcast and they heard it, and that saved them. You're educating someone who didn't even know that this existed. You're educating someone by uh, allowing other people to come on and then giving someone else the ability to have compassion and empathy for them, even though they've never experienced this personally. But the reality of the situation is that, Almost everyone we know has, knows someone who has been abused, whether it's a family member or a friend or a loved one. We all know someone. So this issue touches everyone, and you're highlighting that. So you are. And if you want to transition and pivot some other way, that's fine too. But you are part of this movement. You are doing the work. <clears throat> I appreciate that. Um, it's like... I want to be loud, (laughs) you know, I want to be loud in a way that people hear, you know, because you can be loud and people turn a deaf ear. I want to be loud to the point to where people stop and listen and not just stop and listen, but say, okay, what can I do? You know, how can I make a change? What, what can we do collectively as, a community, as a people. And and I'm not talking about race. I'm talking about as a people, a part of the human species. What can we do? Right. There's um, 
there's so much that can be done. And I, I wish that I had all of the moving pieces and all the moving parts in my hand so that I could just set it all up and say, you know, this is where we are going to be like, I, I don't even want to be a think tank kind of situation. I really want it to be action. I want to pull all the parts together and action, you know, just that the, the synergy that it takes to pull all the pieces together and when they come together, something happens, something changes, something gives, something that needs to be broken breaks, something that needs to be fixed gets fixed because talking about it is not enough. Talking about it is not enough and doing something about it has to happen and all I can say is is that for me, I want to be doing more. And so I thank you. you know, I'm doing what I can, but I want to do more. And I don't know <clears throat> what that's going to look like or how it's going to pan out, but at the end of the day, I have to do more than what I'm doing. And gaining the credibility, because for me, I, ha- I had to – Someone said to me that because of all the things that I went through in my life and that I've experienced, because this is my platform, but I have yet to tell my story. (laughs) And the reason I have not told my story is because I am not wanting to have like a hemorrhage or a bleed out. I don't want people saying all she's doing is talking about stuff that happened to her. I'm talking to people that things that happen to me happen to them because I'm building what I'm I'm building towards the credibility that look, you know, this is not something that just happened to me. I know I'm not the only one. I'm not unique in this. But for the level of the things that happen to me, it's like for every person that I've interviewed on the show, what happened to them happened to me. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot to take. That that's a lot too because I've you know interviewed quite a few people who've had quite a bit happen to them, but why it all happened to me is still something that I say God, you know, nobody but God knows the answer to that. But at the end of the day, it helps me relate to people. It helps me give a voice to people that other people want to silence and don't want to listen mm-hmm. to because I lend I lend my voice to them. It's when, when somebody doesn't want to speak, I'm like, do you want me to speak for you? I'll speak for you. But then there are people still that I need to speak for that I have to make sure that I'm being transparent, I'm being unbiased. I, I don't care whether you are a man or a woman, boy or girl, you're a human being to me. And that's the conversation that I want to continue to have with anyone who comes on this show is to talk to you as a human being. And whatever happens to you, let's talk about it. Um, I'm not a judge or a jury, but I am an advocate and I am a voice and I want other people to come and be heard. And if you're out there and you're listening something that Star has shared with you, something that I have shared or spoken about, and you need a place to lend your voice, please reach out to me. Reach out to me. You have access to me through my show page. You have access to me through my LinkedIn profiles. My name is Patricia Adams. 
live on this show. You can search for me on Google and find me and contact me. And the reason why I'm not giving you a direct um, information is simply because for your safety and for my personal safety is that you can find me if you really want to find me. I'm accessible. I'm there. Call into the show if you just want to call into the show. The number is 515-605-9704 now or in the future for future shows that are coming up. There are a couple of more shows coming up um, this week as well. Call in because the thread that is running through every last show is about sexual abuse of children, sexual abuse of boys, girls, uh, abuse of men, women, whatever you are, whatever age you are, I want you to know that Patricia Adams Live is willing to give voice to you. So, again, start. please tell people how they can reach out to you um, and um, what it is that you need from them. Um, you can reach out to us. We're at the STAR Institute. That's T-H-E-S-T-A-R-R, two R's Institute, um, on Facebook, on Instagram, Um our website is thestarinstitute.org, and if you are in the Atlanta area and you would like for us to come out and give a uh, training one-on-one for domestic minor sex trafficking for youth or for adults, please reach out to us. We'd love to come out and speak to your youth group or to your group of adults just so that everyone can be um, protected um, and just have this conversation. Start having this dialogue um, in your families. Like us, share us, follow us, um, and get empowered. That's what we're here to do. We're here to prevent uh, the sexual abuse and exploitation of girls and to make sure that they receive the care, support, and skills they need to thrive. And so that's going to take all of us to make sure that we can do that for them. Thank you, Star, again, for uh, being on the show. And this is um, this has been a weighty conversation. And I am so glad that those of you who are listening via Facebook, via Twitter, um, from anywhere on the platform, on the website, applications, this is going to be available in iTunes, Spotify. It's going to be available in a lot of different areas. Our audience is going right now. We are globally reaching people, stars. So there are people in Russia, Turkey, Spain, um, Brazil, Canada, tuned in, Uh, the Congo. I I even have people listening in the Congo, which is amazing because I can see the graph that, that says that. So this message is getting out internationally. And I have people in Australia um, just it, it's amazing and it's like it, every time I see a new area light up it, it excites me and we're you know we're gaining ground we're gaining momentum and the conversation is out there and if we as a people globally and internationally can come and make a difference I believe that this is important and I remember when I went in search of the the rights the human rights the human rights came out um, a little bit after, I think, like 1959, 1958, um, you've got 
so many different rights that are out here, but they aren't really being enforced the way that I feel they should be enforced. And there's so many other things that I want to say that I can't say right now just because it's not time for me to say them. But ultimately, at the end of the day, is that every child should have the right to grow up being safe, being happy, feeling loved, feeling empowered, feeling as though they are significant and that they're protected. And at the end of the day, they should grow up to be contributing positive members of the community as a whole, as citizens, and be afforded the right that a human being should be afforded, no matter your color, whatever. There's certain things that are just intrinsically a part of being a human being and the expectation that this human being, this human life that's coming into this world is going to automatically be given these rights and endowed with the power to do and speak and say what needs to be said and what needs to be spoken. So when I was reading more of your information on, on the Star Institute and you said changing the world, and it made me think about Eric Clapton, his song about changing the world. And I went looking for the song, and it's always been an all-time favorite of mine, but he's talking about it in a romantic way. And so I put out there, and, and I hope – that Eric Clapton gets a hold of this and he hears me and gives me permission somehow or another because this is a beautiful song. It's a heartfelt song. And, and I knew there was something about him. And the more that I dug into him, he had a tragic upbringing as well. And he's had a lot of tragedy mm-hmm. in his life. And I find that the people that I relate to, uh, you know, be it in literature, be it in whatever, walk of life it is, there is a reason why. It's because there's something about their life that resonates with me. And all I can say is is that your story resonated with me when I saw you on LinkedIn and I thought, I don't have any filter other than to ask. All she can do is say no. But I'm going to ask. <laughs> and again, <laughs> I want to thank you so much for saying yes and for being here and Feel free to reach out to me anytime you want to be back on the show. When you're ready to talk about your book or anything else that you are doing, please do reach out to me and let me be a part of that conversation with you, okay? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we will end now. And I want to thank you, all of you, wherever you are globally. Thank you for being a part of the show today. Thank you for listening And I know that you can give me feedback anywhere on the platform, comments, uh, share, pass it on. And I do need to do some tweaking to the MP3 file when it becomes available, and I will re-upload it. So if you'll give me about maybe 10, 15 minutes to edit the file and reload it, I would appreciate it very much so that I can clean up that technical difficulty that we had during the first five minutes of the show. Thanks again so much for being on Patricia Adams Live, and I'm just going to replay Change the World as we go out. Star, thank you. Thank you.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.